Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Gautam Mukunda. Gautam, how are you doing? I'm great, Josh. How about you? I'm very good. And it's great to record again. We've been talking offline as well. And lots of very interesting stuff happening on both ends. There's two open threads from our first and second conversations. And I want to recap them and see if we want to pick up on one or both of them. Or we could go in a new, totally new direction too. But at the end of the first one, I had walked you through the first part of the Spodek method, which was to come up with something. Well, it's to – you talked about Big Sur, Redwoods, scuba diving, whales, and to get the emotion, the intrinsic motivation connected with the environment. And at the end of that one, we left open the my invitation to think of something you could do presently or you know after we talk to act on those motivations – you know, not to do what you're supposed to do because you're, the New York Times tells you or any, anything intrinsic like that, but intrinsic. The other open thread was at the end of the second conversation, we had talked a lot about tech. Oh, and, and by the way, I have to apologize and greatly appreciate your patience because when I was listening to it afterward, I interrupted you a lot. And I hope that I didn't annoy you too much. And I hope I didn't annoy the listeners too much. I'm still learning. But uh, the open question at the end was if we have. 8 to 10 billion people on the planet, how can we feed them without technology? I think we both agreed that technology tends to augment the values of the people of the culture using it, but also things like penicillin have helped a lot. Some other things, maybe not. And I wanted to open that with, or is there anything else you want to talk about? We could pick up on either of those threads. My hunch is that I think the listeners will benefit more from picking up the first one and finishing out the Spodek method, because I think that'll change the tone of the conversation. But maybe there's been other things going on in your life. Maybe there's other things you want to talk about. Maybe you want to pick up on the other. How do things sound at your end? I mean, so Josh, well, first is I, I, do, I did not even notice you interrupting me. So I certainly had no problems with it whatsoever. I thought we had a great time. Second, if you think the listeners will benefit from the Spodek method, let's do that first. But I'm happy to talk about both because there's always something interesting happening in the world. In fact, completely unrelated to this, to our conversation. I had a conversation about the intersection between ethics and morality with a dear friend who you would like a lot, actually, Josh, we should, if you're ever in Boston, we'll introduce you, that just would, would impinge directly on that. So, but let's, so maybe, maybe we'll have time to do both. All right. I hope to get to Boston soon. And as my book publishing is continuing the marketing, I want to get up there and speak up there. But all right. So let's go back to when I asked you what the environment meant to you, can you refresh our memories? What, if you can think of yourself in a quintessential moment when you're surrounded by nature, not no motors around, if you think of yourself in nature, does anything come to mind? It might be the same as before. It might be different. I mean, it's still the same as before because we're planning our next trip there, but it's hiking in Big Sur, which has the sort of beautiful thing of being one of the most, you know, beautiful spots on earth, but is also has been relatively well preserved. Not all of it, obviously, but big chunks of it in a way that is, you know, it's it's a credit to the institutions that thought about that, that sort of thought of that, right? And and we're able to preserve that over the course of, a, of more than a century. And so we go out there and when you're out in hiking around this, particularly when you're in the Sequoia Groves, which as an East Coaster, as, as I said last time, when you think of Sequoias, you think of them as just like one tree and then surrounded by a bunch of normal trees. And actually, Sequoia Groves, there are hundreds of these trees. I may not have said this last time, actually. Sequoias sprout from their roots. Like, this, they are clonal. So what 
actually looks to the naked eye as hundreds of trees, all of which are, you know, seemingly the height of skyscrapers, is actually often just one tree that is genetically identical, spreading out across all of them, which in, to, my, to my mind makes it even more impressive and more astonishing. But that imagery of being out there in where the only sounds you can hear are nature, or if you're with someone, maybe it's, it's their, their breathing. That is just astonishing and remarkable. And it, it puts you in touch with the reality of the natural world in a way that I would say, you don't get many opportunities about that to do that on the East Coast, which is just so much more densely populated. Well, now I have to go to Boston and I have to go to Big Sur. You reminded me of a book that I read called Manhattan. It talks about Manhattan before, actually this region before the, not just before Westerners came, but I guess when Westerners came, if it had been made a national park then, it would check the book to make sure, but I think it would vie for one of the most biodiverse places in North America. Of course, now it's got a lot of skyscrapers and pavement and concrete, so it's not very biodiverse. But a lot of places were like that, so haven't been protected so well. Yeah. But back to Big Sur. So you're there. Can you tell us – you talked about what you see and what you hear. Can you talk about the sensory experience more? What do you smell? What do you touch? What do you taste, if anything? Um, smell is hard for me. I feel that I have a pretty weak sense of smell. But you'll, there's – I mean, you're usually enough around pine trees that you'll get that pine needle scent, right? That's there, especially if you go, if you go a little bit higher up in the mountains as you're hiking. The what you feel it's so the weather is, you know, even when we go, which is usually in the late fall when it's, it's quite cold out in Boston, the weather is still just gorgeous out there. Right. So you if there's a nip in the air, it's so mild that just hiking takes care of it. And that is just is this perfect environment to be floating through. I am one of these people who. You know, every mosquito in three states will, will <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> my wife actually does not wear bug spray when she's around me because there is no point, which I just find insane, right? But she's like, no, no, I never get bitten because they all go to you and she's right. And so if you're with me, there'll probably be the faint aroma of bug spray because otherwise <laughs> I, will, I, I will need a blood transfusion by the end of the hike. And then there is a sense of a sort of peace to it, right? So when you're going out far enough that they're – you know, you're on paths, but the paths are not, you know, the paths don't have people on them regularly. So uh, so you'll get, forget a fair amount of wildlife. So, you know, I've never seen a bear out there, which, you know, would, it would be amazing. But, you know, there are always threats around that. But you will see the you'll see that they've been there recently. Right. You'll see the rocks that they've turned over to get the grubs underneath or the or the logs that they've clawed open, that they've split open. Things like occasionally we've seen the footprints for, you know, sort of one of the bigger hunting cats that's out there, things like that. And that's just remarkable. And to be fair, it is surprising how much wildlife is starting to colonize places where people live on the East Coast. My in-laws live in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, which is, you know, a beautiful suburb. And they have a bobcat who wanders through their yard on a regular basis and terrifies our poor dog. So <laughs> I guess there's a little bit more of that back here than you would expect. But it's not it's obviously not the same in any way, shape or form. Birds is the other thing. I have not been lucky enough to spot a California condor, but but there are, you know, a bunch of sort of birds out there that are a lot bigger than anything you regularly see on the East Coast, unless you're right by the ocean and you run into and you see ospreys. 
And so you just get this sense of them flying around and, you know, taking advantage of the thermals generated by the mountains to just float overhead for hours that I don't, you know, I've always wanted to learn to fly a plane. I've never done it. And you sort of watch them and look at that and think about what that must be like. You talked about peace and from the tone of your, of what you're saying, I, I could pick up on some of the emotion, but I, I wonder if you can, can you put a name to them, to the emotions or names to them that you feel when you're there? So peace is definitely part of it, right? Just, I think that comes from the quiet more than anything else, but I think there's, it's a very real, there's a very real baseline happiness that you get from being part of this nature where you're just sort of, I mean, my wife always says that, that, you know, that we got together because she said, you're just a happy person. And that's that one, that was something I wanted in my life. And I would say that's true because I mean, it's true after I met her, it wasn't necessarily true before I met her, but there is a sense of where you're there and you get, you get distance from your everyday life right? That not from the, in a real sense, and especially because I'm there with my, you know, with my family, well, with my wife anyways, you get distance from the, like the sources of stress in your everyday life. It is really hard to be hiking out in Big Sur and thinking about how am I going to do due diligence on my, you know, on a new venture capital. Like it's just, it shrinks, however important that deal might be in your life. And even in the grand scheme of things, depending on the company you're looking at in this moment, in this space, it just drops away from you. It's, you. It allows you to be present in a way that you often are not in your day-to-day life, you know, ordinary urban environments. And we know that, you know, being present makes you happy in a way, that, in an extraordinary powerful way. So peaceful, present, the separation from other, the day-to-day stuff, it would liberated, liberation, free, describe that? Or is that something different? No, I, I think, I mean, you may not be entirely free, but at least for that time when you're out there, you definitely free. I think separate. I think that that liberation is actually a better way of of putting it than my my phrase of separation. Right? That you are the things that are pulling you out of yourself in your normal everyday life are left behind here, and you are liberated from them at least for a little while. So not separated from yourself. Yeah, no, you're not separated from yourself. You're separated from the other things in your life. You, you are, I would say, almost in more touch with yourself. Yeah. So what I understood you to say was that the things that separate you from yourself, those are gone. Yeah. At least partly left behind. That's exactly. So here's the challenge, if you're up for it, is mm-hmm. to think of something you could do based on those emotions, to bring about those emotions in your regular life now. It could be once or it could be many times that to make you... Well, you'll never be able, you probably won't be able to recreate exactly those feelings that you feel in exactly that place, but something to create them with the constraints that it's something new that you're not already doing, something you do yourself. It can involve someone else, but if they, you know, you can't make them do it, if they're, that you would still do it even if they can't. And that has some physical component so that you, when it finishes, you have some, in some way you left things better than you found it. It's not just to purely, uh, neutral, and uh, and just to reinforce, I think you know this, but not to not this isn't something to fix the environment. I'm not saying what can you do to make things better. I'm saying what can you do to make yourself feel this liberation or this peace, this you know separate yourself from or take remove the things that separate you from yourself. Are you up for? Do you want to give a shot at coming up with something? 
so we've been thinking, I mean, since we had this conversation, think about that. I remember the thing we sort of said we would do is I would try and make a commitment to like hiking and, you know, going outdoors and doing a real hike at least once a month, wherever I was. And that, that I managed to stick to. And, you know, said is not just do that, but try and pick up litter on the way. So, and I managed to stick to the litter thing I did, but I will say I spent a big chunk of that time in Sweden where the litter, I will pick up litter thing becomes entirely superfluous because apparently no one in Sweden litters. So you just don't see any quite, quite remarkably so. But that, so where we left it, I think was that I would try to do that. And, and I did, uh, and actually did, you know, was, I mean, it says, did was outdoors and hiking and was sort of making my way through, you know, relatively in Sweden, it was farm country. So not, not as like, it's more natural than Boston, but nothing like Big Sur, but you're at least outside. And, you know, did that often enough that I didn't keep track of whether it was once a month because we were so far over, there was no point. Right. And that, what I would say is I did not feel the way I do when I'm out there. But I definitely felt different in a way that, I mean, it was not surprising to me because of all this research on how being in touch with nature makes you feel better, but was was powerful, right? Enough that I that even when, when I'm really busy, I wanted to, and we're going to try to make a commitment to keep keeping to it. Oh, well, then maybe because I was thinking about the sailing stuff that didn't happen, which was like a big, would have been really big. Yeah, the sailing stuff hasn't, has not, I, I mean, I would still love to do that, but that, yeah, that did not happen. But going out there and hiking did happen. And, you know, and when I'm in the U.S., going out and hiking and picking up litter that I see does happen, continue, has continued to happen. So I have to share something totally unrelated. And I, I apologize to everyone that I'm – but I can't help but share this thing that's awesome. People may know that, I, you know, I haven't flown for – since 2016 and I still want to get to other continents. So I took sailing lessons years ago. And now next month in September, I'll be taking my first open water ocean lessons Oh, wow. Yeah. So it'll be two days. I mean, it's not pure open ocean. It'll be going from a place in Long Island to not Providence, but somewhere in Rhode Island, maybe Providence. And two days there, two days back. And I'm really excited about it. Maybe, I mean, I might not be so excited if I'm puking over the side, but I'm really excited about that. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. And soon the Pacific and the Atlantic or Atlantic probably first and the Pacific. Anyway, so back to you. <laughs> All right. So you've been doing this. So now you, so were the walks things that you did, did you channel, were you deliberately thinking of Big Sur, even if not, you know, imagining you were just there, but did you, was that a part of it? The Big Sur, not so much just because it's, it's such a different environment, but this sense of like, okay, I need to do more of this. I mean, I mean, part of it is just, just, you know, getting outside, getting exercise, you know, like, but I, and I'm naturally a gym rat, right? Which has its virtues and it's more time efficient and things like that, but it's not the same thing as being out there and actually doing a real hike. And so I really enjoyed that in a way that, so the guys, sorry, so long answer to a short question. So I wasn't consciously thinking of Big Sur and maybe I should have, but I was consciously thinking of the project. And. Can you share more about how it went? Can you walk me through one of the example times? So, so my wife's family has a, you know, a farmhouse out in southern Sweden, and it's it's sort of the that's where we were for a big chunk of the time, and we would just go, you know, every so one thing is when you're that far north, it's like like, like seemingly it's so we were not in twenty four hour daylight, but 
it seemed that way. I have, um, I'll send, I'll, I'll text it to you, Josh. These amazing photos I snapped just with my iPhone of the sun at three in the morning, right? Like mm-hmm. lighting up this lighting up thing. So if you go out in like the late afternoon there, it still seems like in the middle of the day. And so we would just go out and sort of, and so we sort of leave the farmhouse and you're in the middle of this sort of dense network of, of, farms that stretch as far as the eye can see in southern sweden they have you know their horses they're just just everything you can imagine and we would just you know just set out we were just far enough away from the ocean that you couldn't really hike to it i take that back you could hike to it but we often would not we'd go in a different direction and just go through the countryside and you know sweden southern sweden is really beautiful you know it's cultivated beauty these are active farms but it is really sort of gorgeous and you just you could just wander around we were both working, right? It wasn't it wasn't a vacation, just on just on a slightly different time schedule. But you could spend an hour and a half or two hours just wandering around and seeing this sort of this almost I mean, even though it's a you know, a modern environment with internet access when you're in the inside, when you're between farms, it doesn't look that way, right? Like you could have been dropped I'm sure it looked exactly the same in the seventeenth century. That's the way I would put it. Now, I have to be a stickler here. You were going to go there anyway. Were these walks you would have taken anyway? Or is this something, were you doing something different as a result of our conversations? I would have gone there anyways. I would say some of the walks would have happened anyways because, you know, you're out there. I would have not taken advantage of it. But the frequency of them was very much because of the conversation. Okay, cool. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah. I have had people and I could tell that they're like getting credit for something they were going to do anyway. And they're kind of... <laughs> so. What was the emotional experience? Actually, not just of the walks, but of preparing for them, of knowing, you know, from the time you committed to it, including the planning, the thinking about it, then when you're on it, then maybe even reflecting afterward, preparing for this conversation, maybe. Yeah. So, so uh, the preparing is, is very little, right? Because again, you know, you're in Southern Sweet. There's not really anything that can go wrong, right? You can just set off at random and have great faith that that you will, you know, like you will not get hot, it won't get dark, and you will eventually make your way home in perfect safety. Your worst case is you get lost and it's a little bit longer than you thought it would be. So preparing was much less than it would normally, I mean, I, I did way less preparing out there than I would have in Big Sur, right? Just be like, okay, you know, let's go in this direction and see where we get. My wife and I also, when we were driving out there, had because um, all the roads are perfect grids, something we still make jokes about months later. If you're using Google Maps, you will discover, astonishingly, that every intersection, it will tell you, you can go either left or right, and it will be the same amount of time to your destination. And we're just like, how can every single turn be the same? I mean, anyways, when you're there, it's funny. But the emotional experience is, you know, you're there. At first, you're sort of, you know, there's always, you know, really busy, right? We were doing stuff for, it was writing stuff, things like that. And there, there are times when you're like, I want to do this. Like I have work to do. Do I really want to do this now? And then you just, once you're out, out for a couple of minutes, that drops away because you are getting the sense of being of, I wonder how much of it is just, um, the sight lines, right? You were just looking, you know, when you're indoors, you cannot see anything that's far away. Like you physically cannot. And I wonder to what extent there has a shift in your psychology, the ability to just stand out in the middle out, outside, especially, you know, in Sweden, there are no forests, there's nothing blocking. You're just looking out into infinity, essentially, and feeling that 
again, not to the same extent, but there is some element of just, okay, my normal considerations drop away. I'm not in, you know, I am not really in good cell reception. So even if someone needs to reach me, it's not going to happen. So I don't have to, you know, I'm not going to check Twitter or whatever. Just you're just there and in the moment to a really striking extent. Now, I want to specify, you're talking about Sweden, Mm -hmm. but the exercise was to do the over and above beyond what you would have done anyway. Yeah. So I don't want to, one of the main goals here is to, is for people to see, well, to discover if it's there to be discovered for them, as it has been for me, that you don't have to go halfway around the world to find nature. In fact, or rather not to find nature, but to find what you get from nature. So yes, Sweden sounds lovely, but you were going to go there anyway. You did extra walking that you wouldn't have done otherwise, and you picked up litter. So were there emotions related to that? Because presumably you didn't have to go to Sweden to do this. You could do this. And actually, you it sounds like you are doing it in Boston as well. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'd say we have been we've been back and forth so often it's happened less here, partly because we had a as you know, Josh, um like a, a family medical emergency where our much beloved dog had to have emergency surgery. So so he is doing much better. He has to wear a cone right now, so he's very upset with us. But he's fine. He's gonna be fine. Anyone who knows me, so if anyone who knows me is listening to this podcast, they know that that is he rules my, rules our lives with an iron paw. So didn't do a lot of hiking while that was going on. I will I'll say that. But in Boston, what I have doing is, and partly I do think this is one of the things that dogs do for us, right, is I might want to stay inside and work, but that is not an option when Rudy needs to go outside. Like, it just isn't. And so it becomes a forcing function of getting out and doing that. The difference is the the litter thing, right? So it's sadly, um, Boston Common is not as is not as much as it should be. And I have started to make a practice of picking stuff up in a way that I would not have before you, even though I know I should have. But our conversation did have that effect on me of being like, okay, we can do this. We can, you know, there's sort of random crap that people have left behind that needs to be, that needs to be taken care of. And that emotion is like, what I'd say is that relatively small thing does have an impact because you feel, you know, you feel connected to the world in a way that you, to your community in a way that that has, you know, like, I didn't do much, but I did something that made this wonderful place and Boston Common is great urban park better than it was when I found it. I'd like to focus on that because the talk about Sweden is about Sweden, which just sounds beautiful. I guess a Swedish person in Boston might think Boston has amazing things as well because they're not used to seeing it. And I want to get the delta for you, the difference for you. So you, you mentioned picking up litter making you feel connected. Did it also make you feel dirty or gross? No, not at all. How come you didn't do it before? Yeah, and you know, and that's a particularly striking question because, because of course, I used to walk with when I, you know, when I with our mutual friend Everett Spain, who would do that all the time. Yeah, and like he did it, and I think the answer is there's a psychological barrier of like, why would I do this? You know, because you think it would make you feel dirty or something like that. But I mean, one, since I now routinely pick up my dog's poop, like you know, that's a much higher bar than that. So. That reflex may largely have been eroded by Rudy anyways. And the others, just once you do it, once you do it, you realize that those feelings that you thought you had were not like they were a forecast of how you would feel that were not actually real. I think this is 
I say, is, I, there are a lot of experiences that are like this, but it is very hard for people to talk to strangers. But when they do it, they discover that it's not hard, right? That you're afraid of doing it, and that makes it hard. But once you actually start doing it, it is not difficult for most people. Obviously, there are some people for whom it is very difficult, but but most of the time, it's not as hard as you think it will be. And I think that this is sort of another example of that, where it's sort of, well, I'm going to feel dirty, or I'm going to be grabbing, you know, I'm going to cut my hand on broken glass or something like that. But actually, none of those things are really going to happen. And once you do it, then you realize that. How does that change the relative values of walking around Boston versus walking around Sweden? Well, I mean, other than the fact that Sweden doesn't have litter, <laughs> at least not the places I was in. So there's no like feeling of, oh, the world is a slightly better place because I was doing that in Sweden. I was just doing that in Sweden. The Boston thing, what I say is they are different experiences. It doesn't change the relative values, but it does change. Hmm. I have to think about that question a little bit more, I think. I would not have said it made walking around Boston better by doing that. But when I think back at it, the answer is obviously that it does. And so and so maybe it does change that. It certainly makes me feel better about doing it. Yeah, I've certainly had – I mean, I pick up a lot of litter. And it's part of what – the more connected I get to where I am, the less I miss flying or rather visiting faraway places. Like I feel like – in fact, I feel more connected with faraway places now than when I would visit them because the flying seems, in retrospect, I mean, there were times I spent a year in Paris. That definitely, I felt like I connected with Paris. But when I spent a week there, the most recent visit it was a few days, uh, a week in both London and Paris. I was just kind of dropping in and seeing stuff. Like it wasn't, I'm sure there's something there. You know, if people are flying, they're not going to hear me and think, well, that sounds great. I'm never going to fly again just based on that. But there is this difference. I'm not sure if that clicked with you. One of the big things for me was getting in the in February and March when the farmer's market doesn't have any greens and it's just root vegetables and I got to figure out how to make what I got taste good. Then I feel more connected with faraway places because that's how cuisine happens. What do we got back when we didn't have everything shipped in from California? And what do we do with it? Because we want to make it taste good and be healthy. So I feel more connected just as a result of less traveling rather than more. Did anything like that happen with you? I mean, I can't say that it did, but I, I think it's it's a different type of connection. I mean, I like, you know, I come from a global family, right? Like my wife's family is from Sweden and, you know, she grew up half there, half here. My family's from India. I grew up in the United States almost entirely, but we have relatives there. You know, we have relatives all over the world. And you do feel like, I would say, I would say she feels much more closely connected to Sweden than I do to India because she spent so much time there growing up. But there is a connection that I, you know, if we were to have kids, I would not want them to lose touch with a culture and environment that, you know, is, is 5,000 years old and is on the other side of the planet. And I'm not sure there's a way to do that without actually going there. But at least occasionally. But I do think that. I do think that there is a sense of place and rootedness in your community that – so let me, let me put this differently. I identify very strongly with the United States as my sense of – right? The country, which is a large and abstract thing, but that mean, it means a lot to me. And I would never 
like I might choose to live in other countries for some span of time, but this will always be my home. And I would never consider anywhere else my home, any other country my home. But I don't like, you know, I grew up in Maryland. It was my home. Now I'm in Massachusetts. It is my home. I could imagine living in, you know, in a different state and it would become my home. Right. And so that suggests to me that I am not as deeply rooted in locality as I am to this, you know, quite rather abstract institution. And I suspect that that is the thing that is missing in my life that sounds like that it's very present in yours. Increasingly, yeah, it's because I'd also, you know, six continents over a couple dozen countries and always felt like there was more out there. And I always viewed travel is good. That was just clear to me. And I don't know how to describe it. I've not been able to describe the mental and emotional shift to anyone that's made any sense, except for people who've also curbed their flying. It's like trying to describe how to a meat eater, how being vegan can be like, I like it more. Like they're like, doesn't, doesn't compute. I mean, I will say that I don't think they're mutually incompatible, right? You know, I think particularly of like friends of mine in the military who have like deep connections and senses to local, to local communities and also equally, you know, one to the country as a whole. But I do think it's harder to have both. Yeah. I wonder how my sailing's going to go because <laughs> then the sailing alone part will be longer than many trips and will be its own adventure. Do you know Dave Newman, Josh, at MIT? I don't. So she's a, she was a, when I was a grad, I knew her, I mean, I still, still still know her, but I met her when I was a grad student. Wonderful, you know, amazing, brilliant researcher. She's the head of the media lab now, but I think she still has the record for a solo sail across either the Atlantic or the Pacific. Yeah, I had, uh, oh no, her name saves me. And we met through Renaissance Weekend. Roz, Roz, she said, she rode across the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Oceans, solo. Have you met her? I, I'm not sure. I have not. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that, and she was just like a regular person. She was, a, I think, a consultant and just decided to do this. And it just struck me. It didn't hit me. Like when I read about it and heard about it, I thought, well, that's amazing. She's an amazing person. And she is an amazing person. But she became amazing by doing something. It, you know, she she is just a regular person or was it remains. We all can do these things. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed me, and I don't know if you can hear it because this microphone is one directional, but I, you may have noticed I keep muting my, my microphone and it's... There are police in the background I can hear now. Yeah, and I've been muting a bunch of them and the helicopter's overhead and it's like a war zone here. Yeah, one of the things I've been saying a lot lately is sound pollution is pollution and it's well documented. I'm sure you've seen what it does to our health and our sleep and all sorts of things. And it's, I think people don't recognize it as serious as, as we could. Yeah. I mean, so certainly that, you know, I live in the center of a city like you and, you know, I'm lucky, right? I'm, I'm like, I live in a building that's essentially soundproof. So when you're here, it's there, but when we're here, it's not a big deal. But it's really striking the extent to which we've just accepted this sort of baseline cacophony in our lives. Yeah. And I can't – if I close the windows in the summer, I don't use air conditioner. So it like shoots up very quickly to too hot. So I have to leave the window open, which by the way, across the street from me, 
down this whole block, the air conditioners are on basically, as best I can tell, they turn them on in May and leave them on 24-7 until September, October. And there's one across the street from me and I can see it. The window is open. One window is open and next to it is the air conditioner. It's not on right now, this one. But there are plenty of times when the window is open and the air conditioner is on. Ugh. That's, yeah. So... So the window, the air conditioner. So I do know why this is one of those things that I, I learned a little while ago about how, you know, like things shape our, our design. So New York buildings, famously old ones, right? Ones built after the First World War. They'll often be so strongly heated that when the heat's on in winter, you still have to leave the windows open. Yeah. And this drives you crazy. It turns out there that is not an accident. Yeah, from the pandemic. Yeah, uh, which just blows my mind that that's actually a deliberate design choice that we're still stuck with 80 years later. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of, I don't know if I've talked to you about Amsterdam and how I learned that it was, you know, most people identify it as a bike-friendly city and it was overrun with cars. And it was, I thought, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was overrun with cars. I just thought, I never knew that. And I thought it was... That way, bike-friendly because it was like a medieval city built for walking and it just happened to be better for bikes. But it was a deliberate – it was done deliberately by the citizens in the face of a government that was trying to turn it into something like – it could have become Houston. They were going to build in all these bypasses and raise what we now think of as downtown Amsterdam. And so a lot of people here talk about, oh, here's what I'm going to do for the environment is I'm going to buy an electric vehicle. And we take for granted that, well, there are these roads we have to and suburbs and we have to commute all this distance. So I need a car. And I think fewer roads, which is what Amsterdam did as well as most other Dutch cities. And then that's other places did it independently and spread from there to other places. Like a tactical thing would be – a tactical solution would be buy an electric vehicle. But that's in a strategy – I don't know what the strategy there would be because it's buying more cars, but we want fewer cars and to get fewer cars, fewer roads. So I feel like buying an electric vehicle is is a tactic without a strategy and maybe elevated to strategy when an effective strategy would be something like fewer roads. I mean, I would not want to discourage people from buying electric cars, but the evidence that sort of, yeah, fewer roads, like living in walkable environments and doing that most of your time and like, you know, using mass transit when you have to is good for you and good for the world. Both is so overwhelming. It amazes me that this is even a matter of debate. You know more about the stuff than I do, Josh, but I think there's actually a big thing in urban planning about the 15 minute city. Yeah. Where everything's within a walk or bike ride of 15 minutes where you are. Yeah. And I will say like, this is for me because of the particular location where we live. The city of Boston is that for me. There is nothing in Boston I cannot get to within 15 minutes. And it is amazing. Yeah, and that's by foot or by, I presume, probably also the T. Yeah, I might have to change my modality of transport. Yeah, it's mostly by foot and and T. But yeah, I mean, occasionally it means an Uber, but Boston Mass Transit is so good, that's not too common. Yeah, Greenwich Village has that for me. And a lot of people complain about they don't have it somewhere. I'm like, yeah, generations made it that way. I mean, there's... It was top-down and bottom-up. So we have to – if we want to reverse it, it has to be top-down and bottom-up. But everyone from the bottom-up neglects it. They're like, well, we can't do anything. So it's – governments, corporations have to do it. And in the meantime, we don't – it's like this abdication of doing anything about it, which I feel is – has become a culture of like 
well, I can't do anything. Just accept it. But the flip side is that when people do work on it, then big things happen. I mean, Amsterdam would be a big example of that or some community gardens around here that I love. But in the US, well, that's what I'm trying to kickstart is a big movement. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It says is I think that there is in the U.S. a reluctance to believe slash understand that how to say that many of the features of our life that we think of as like just natural outcomes of people. Everybody wants to live like this X, right? Are actually a product of deliberate policy choices that were made long before most of us were born. Right? That the suburbs that seemingly supposedly everybody wants to live in were created, right? And like like through a combination of like tax policy and with you know in some cases racial motivations to look the way that they are. And that it's not just a product of like people freely choosing to live however they want. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're referring to say Richard Rothstein or Leah Rothstein, his daughter, who's his book Color of Law or her book Just Action. Yeah, I mean, I let's say is I am familiar with their arguments from articles. I have, I, I'm so sad to say, I haven't had time to read either book yet. But yeah, fantastic stuff, and I mean, life changing. And oh, we only have ten minutes left. I got to tell you about something I found out about the question on how do we feed ten billion people or eight billion people. Yeah, go for it. That someone, a guy, a guest on the podcast, Chris Beistroff, he is a biologist at Rensselaer, I think. And he did population modeling as part of one of his things. And he, he put it out to me, the assumptions that go into the UN projections. And suddenly, the UN projections have become, for me, one of the greatest forces against sustainability. I'm stating it now for the first time publicly, so it's, I, I'm not sure if I've said it quite right. But- mm -hmm. They model demographics, so age, gender, education level, and some things like immigration and emigration, and some things like wars and pandemics. But things that they describe as high-impact, low-probability events, they ask experts to get some numbers on, and they use that to increase the error bars. Now, I'm oversimplifying, and I'm not a demographer. So I may be oversimplifying in ways that I don't understand, in which case I hope someone, if someone knows better, they correct me. But as best I can tell, the input information just shows rising and lowering birth rates and death rates, but doesn't show, okay, an earthquake is a high impact, low probability event. An asteroid hitting the earth is high probability, low impact event. Other way around. Global warming is not. Plastic pollution in the ocean is not. Overfishing fisheries is not. These are things that are accumulating over time that in principle, there might be high impact, low impact, high impact, low probability solution to one of these things. But I mean, if the Ogallala aquifer runs dry and we're on track for that to happen, the Tigris and Euphrates don't reach the ocean. The Colorado River doesn't reach the ocean. These things are not low probability. They're happening or already are done. But they're not, they don't factor in. So there's no feedback from our impact on the environment back to the models, meaning these models wouldn't show a collapse of a population, even if it was clearly going to happen. 
So that changes the question from what's going to happen next to given that we have 8 to 10 billion people that will be here in the future, what must we do in order to make them, to keep them going? And normally I would, since we referred to the sirens before, I'll keep talking over the siren. Sorry for people if it's annoying to you, but we mentioned it and it's life in New York or life in a very populated place. But this is to me a huge shift that I don't think is warranted by the information that it's not a given that we're going to, and the plots look really smooth. It's smooth kind of going up to 8 billion and maybe slowly going down a bit. There's no big shifts or big jolts. So I think it's fair for people to say, well, look, the UN, the UN created the IPCC. So the IPCC is like screeching and, and shrill about, oh, oh, there's all these dangers. But the same organization that says, we got to act, we got to act, we got to act also shows, well, at least as far as the population is concerned, pretty smooth sailing. And the third thing the UN does is they also fly around like crazy. So I feel like this one organization is really like a a wrecking crew for saying, like, whatever our warnings are, actually not a problem. We're not doing anything, and we project that it won't affect the population. And so all we got to do is figure out how to feed them and make sure that the poor aren't that poor, which says, keep boosting the GDP and keep keep doing what we're doing. So I would say, that, I mean, the person who makes the strongest argument of the form that you're describing, and I'm I'm not agreeing with the argument. I'm just saying the person who makes the strongest argument of the form you're describing is, I think, Bjorn Lomborg, right? Who says, like, look, if you really look at this now, I would say that the counterargument, I think, is exactly right. And the weight that you're making is right in that the models are, and the person who I think makes this argument best is my friend who I've connected you with, and I hope he's feeling okay and is able to answer you because, as we said, he sometimes he can't is my friend, my brilliant friend, Spencer Glenn, right? Mm -hmm. Who did, I think, a better job than anyone else I'm aware of of laying out, like, because he is a PhD economist, these models don't actually make sense when you sort of go outside the very narrow bounds that they for which they were constructed. I recall, I'm not sure if it's Spencer or somebody else similarly who pointed out that in these models, there is a US GDP if the global temperature reaches like 75 degrees C. Sorry, did you say 75 degrees C? 75, yeah. He's right. You know, like plug it into the model and there will output like this is what US GDP will be at that temperature. And in fact, in reality, we will all be dead. Yeah. Right? Like like that is the actual outcome. Everyone, we will all die. But the model will give you a number of this is what US GDP will look like. And his point is that, right, you know, obviously that is an extreme outcome that we're not going to see. But his point is the model doesn't necessarily work outside the bounds of the historical norms from which the model is drawing on data. And we should expect there to be discontinuities outside those spaces, and yet we plan as if they are not. There are not. So this is why I'm not so keen on tech solutions. Maybe I'm over-extrapolating from what you said to – it feels like the people, they just like, okay, well, if it's going to be 75 degrees out Celsius, then, well, I guess we'll just have to download our consciousnesses onto computers. That'll solve it. Like I feel like if – if you have the, I'm oversimplifying. I'm, I'm outside my range, and we're running out of time on this call. But yeah, the your open question of how will we feed eight billion or ten billion if if not through technology? To me, that's the answer to that question: is we can't. We can't either with or without technology. I mean, except in the very short term, short term for 
on a decades timescale, maybe century. So I take your point, but I think there's an answer to that, right? Which was is twofold. One is the Keynes thing, right? Like in the long run, we're all dead, right? So when you were talking about scale of billions and billions of people, right, you have to get through the short term to get to the long term. And we owe it to those people to get them through the short term. So like, it is clear to me, and I, I think this is a place where we're entirely in agreement, that on the current trajectory of and damage that we are doing to the global environment, like an 8 billion person human civilization is not sustainable for like a century. That, that things will begin to go wrong at a scale that will have, that will make everything that we've currently experienced because of climate change be very minor. Right? Because it is the counter argument that people make right now, which is the average person is better off right now than at any other point in modern history and maybe in human history. Like we can disagree about that, but it's not a dumb argument, right? It's not on its face complete. It's not completely wrong. And it may actually be right. And so the thing, the challenge that the, the model that we we're discussing, I think, has is I agree with you that in the long term, we have the catastrophe is looking at us, but we have to get to the long term. Right. Like a situation in which we, you know, global agriculture collapsed in the short term or we abandon the technological things that allow us to keep a billion people alive in the short term. That is not an acceptable solution. And we got to figure out how to get through that. I have some great ideas here and we're going to have to wait till another call. <laughs> Absolutely. Any last words to, for this conversation before wrapping up? Your audience will have heard me say this before, but Josh, but like I always have more interesting thoughts in these conversations and of course have more fun than I do in just about any other. So it is always a pleasure. And I thank you. I thank you for giving me the opportunity. I'm honored and flattered. Gotham Akunda, thank you very much. Take care, buddy. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.